0: I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review.
1: Welcome to episode 176. I have this sudden urge to dedicate my productive cooperation. This week, we're discussing season 2, episode 17 of Battlestar Galactica, The Captain's Hand, and season 6, episode 13 of Buffy, Dead Things.
0: As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right. Pegasus stuff. Yeah. Oh, wait. Uh, The Captain's Hand. Sorry, I needed to read the line above that. Um, Yeah, the Captain's (laughs) Hand. What
1: if that was the title? Pegasus stuff.
0: That's that's the title of our episode. Oh, no. We have a much longer title for our episode. Yeah. Yeah. um, So... As maybe was implied by my jumping the gun, we're going to kind of break this down into uh, talking about the, the the Pegasus stuff and then the Galactica stuff. So it's it's interesting because like we've done this before, where it's been like the Galactica and then like a planet, right, mm-hmm. like Co- Cobalt or Caprica or whatever. Mm-hmm. But we haven't done it where that I think, at least I don't remember. Recall off the top of my head doing it, right? Where we're like talking about what happens on different ships, right? Um, right. So, right. I, I don't know that that's a huge thing per se. It's just kind of an interesting little right uh, uh, twist. Um, well, I feel I like this before. is the
1: first one where a story is taking place on Pegasus, like that's not where the story isn't Pegasus, like versus Galactica. You know? Like, it's not like they're in conflict. It's like, this is the first one where it's like, oh, this is just another ship in the fleet that has, like, a, you know, a a culture and a group of people of its own, and people are working there and having to figure out, like, a situation that's unique to that ship.
2: Mm.
1: Without, like, not that the Galactic is not involved at all, but you can kind of separate it out more a little bit. Um,
0: Yeah. Sure. And yeah, I mean, right. Like, even with, like... Obviously, you had the stuff with Cain, and that got Harry, And then... Um, oh, gosh, what was the fat dude again? Uh, was Fisk. Name? Fisk, right. Uh, where you have, like, the plot with him and the, you know, underground, mm-hmm. you know, kingpin guy, and, like, it's all intertwined there. Or whatever. Right. But, yeah, you're right. Like, this is the one... Like, kind of the first time where we had these, like, two... Like, Pegasus is already kind of off doing its own thing.
2: Right.
0: And we sort of got that uh with Scar, right? Except we didn't see what Pegasus was doing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We we're were just sort of told, like, oh, Pegasus is off with the fleet somewhere mm-hmm. while we're doing this mining operation and protecting the miners. Mm-hmm. So... Now we have another new. Well, okay. So sorry, backing up. We've got we, you know we we'll start off with Lee and D, uh, who's re, you know their relationship has moved forward. Mm-hmm. Billy's Billy's out of the picture. <laughs> I mean, I say that somewhat callously. Right. Obviously, like I I don't necessarily think that's whatever. But there's also a. a Time passage, like we get the right. the one sentence from Lee that there's been like almost a month has passed right um right, so we're jumping so,
1: forward a bit, and yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, um he's healed at least to some degree from his shot, you know from getting shot mm-hmm. um and you know he and d like there's nothing really between the two of their you know two of them you know having. Whatever it is they have, which includes locking people out of the barracks for a while. Right. Um, And, uh, yeah, so Lee also seems to sort of gotten over his um, uh, uh, destituteness, (laughs) Um, which seems like just a few episodes ago. Like, it doesn't seem like that long ago where he was like... Ready to die, right, you know. Right, and like now, now. Having gotten shot, and like finding right solace in the arms of D, um, or whatever. Right, uh, you, you know he's gotten past that, so. Things seem to be going okay there. Um. And now he's got an assignment on Pegasus. Which, I'm not. 100% sure I understand other than like it's this nebulous thing where like he's going to like resolve some sort of conflict between Starbuck and the new commander. Commander Grant. Right.
1: I mean that kind of seems like it is it's he's there to kind of as he says later like he really is like there to clean up after her messes of you know you send Starbuck in a particular place to do a particular job that maybe she's qualified for or whatever, but she leaves behind like a certain, you know, destruction that needs sort of tending to, you know, in her wake. Like, you know, apparently she can't really go over to the new assignment totally on her own. She needs a kind of a buffer
0: there yeah.
1: um, to help mediate and- between her and, you know, this, this new commander.
0: So, like, you do get, uh, like, obviously we've been talking about Starbuck and her problems with authority mm-hmm. from the beginning, um, but you do get the sense, too, that Garner is not someone who's particularly uh, uh, keen on Viper Pilots, mm. right? Right. Um, he, you know, he, he, does, he does real work, right? He's, uh, what does he call it? He, uh, a snipe? Right mm-hmm. like I think is the term that he uses for the guys in the engine room, and like like he definitely took a different path mm-hmm. uh, coming up you know through command to to reach this spot, and well, you know we already know that there's few people who are able to. Be promoted, right? Like, like we're kind of getting the sense that Adam is scraping the bottom of the barrel, mm-hmm. even even as far as you know, putting Garner in command and that kind of thing. Right. like we we've had this problem even before, where um, like just on Galactica, right? Like trying to get a new CAG in place, right? Like right? when like, right the
1: period where Lee and Kara were both gone, like, and you had. Right. The guy who like was like crashing the ships just trying to like refuel them and stuff. Um Right. You know.
0: So, yeah. you know, they're uh Yeah, they they don't have a very deep lineup as as one might right. say about like a sports team right. or something, right. right? Um And
1: actually, you know, it it didn't this didn't occur to me until now. I didn't think of it when I was watching it. Um, but in some ways it kind of reminds me of the few times that we've ever seen like Captain Kelly in the CIC, because it's like, I get the sense of, Mm. it's, it's kind of, there's a similarity there of someone who may be qualified in terms of, they have a lot of experience doing the job that they do. And they may be the next in line in terms of rank, you know, which seems to be the main reason for promoting this guy Garner is like, you can't promote someone above him if he's the highest ranking, like just by the sheer, mm-hmm. the sheer hierarchy of who is has what status you like. Right. It's, it's against sort of maybe it's not, you know, politically correct in the situation of like, you have to go in order of how people are ranked, but right. you have a sense of him coming in, not being, Definitely being an outsider to the CIC, the world of command, the how combat yeah. works, how like, how, you know, pilots work, all this stuff, which I feel like we've had a similar feeling whenever we see Kelly is like, maybe he is third in line, but his job takes him off somewhere else. And when mm. he comes in, not that he's not experienced, but he doesn't really feel like he knows the, how it works in the same way that some of the others do who are there like all the time.
2: Um, right.
0: like even Geta, who's a lieutenant, right? right? So he's under right. captain, but like he right. at times has the con and right. like seems at least somewhat competent right. in right. being able to run right. it. Right. And you saw you
1: yeah, yeah. And you saw Ty you following that, right. his advice over Kelly's. You know? Right. Um and probably it's based more on that, you know, uh, in the weeds, doing the work kind of experience as opposed to having the rank or the, the long term experience that Kelly has. I feel like I get a similar vibe from Garner of like, he probably is a genius in the engine room, but has he ever commanded a Battlestar before? Not necessarily. Um,
0: well, then that's what field commands are, right? Like it's you you know, you either step up and are able to do it or you,
1: right. you have to be able to find out it. very yeah.
0: quickly that you can't. Right. <laughs> um so and and in talking about promotions, of course, we can't skip over Lee's uh promotion to major. Right. right here. Which, you know major of what like like typically when, you know, like you're put in a command position, you're in command of something, mm-hmm. and it's not clear like what major mm-hmm. does in this situation. Like he's not like like you already have the CAG mm-hmm. right, and like the the commanders of you know the captains of like the the fleets and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's not real clear what Lee's position as major is. Like sure. there's no other. I don't think we have we seen any other majors like at all um, like maybe may, maybe um maybe the marines maybe there was like a ma- major and as like one of you know the head of the marines or something but i can't even yeah i can't be think of any. positive of that so i just like i'm having trouble like even seeing like what it means for him to be major other other than that i know like it's above captain right but like i don't know what that means in you know with respect to like him as a viper pilot but he's not like because he can't fly so like is this like a temporary position until he can get back into a seat and then does he become a captain again or is it like it doesn't feel that way like feels well i mean by the end of the episode it's more permanent anyway but yeah like so i'm not even sure like what it means for him to be a major like is that why he's getting sent to pegasus like major is some sort of like like he's a special liaison or something between the ships right, like right. again like it's it's just kind of unclear what exactly his position and assignment are mm-hmm. other than keep things in order and he's above most people not everyone but like all of the other personnel that we've seen besides like commanders and you know uh uh admirals mm-hmm. <laughs> um we don't we don't know who else, like, has the rank of major. But Lee seems to be above most everyone else besides those few people. I
1: did a quick Google. The only other major that I think we know of is Doc Cottle.
0: Oh. Is a major, I, yeah, apparently. And I would not have known that. Yeah. Which
1: they don't really recall in that, so how would you really right. know? But and, um,
0: And, like, he seems kind of, like, on his own. Like maybe theoretically like he could order people around but he just kind of seems like he's doing his own thing like you know he's military but it's like not military military it's like yeah he's a medic right so you know he does his thing and whatever um interesting yeah
1: oh and actually there's one more it was the former CAG before like who died like in the genocide like, the the CAG at the time. Oh, wow. So I wonder if, hmm. like, CAGs are typically, like, majors. And, like, Lee, in that sense, is a little underqualified to have been doing, like, the job that he was doing. Or why wouldn't they have promoted him to major at the time? But it might be something like that, of he's been doing a job which normally would be done by somebody higher in rank than him.
0: Yeah. Um, well, it looks like CAG... Keg- just means like, it, I mean, it's, so it's commander of the air group, right? right so it's, right. it like, it's just like the senior ranking person. Right. So maybe that, you know, whatever that uh, happens to be, whether it's captain or major or whatever. Right.
1: So anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. In- interesting. Um. So, yeah. So, you know. There's these two of these promotions, and I guess in a way, you're sort of, you know, given their positions, like you're sort of forced to like look at those in in parallel, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So, Commander Garner, uh, we get, you know, he he sort of gets this situation of. You know, there's these two raptors that go missing on his watch. Um, where, you know, no one knows kind of what happened. They just sort of blink out of existence, at least on the Draetus.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but, you know, it's not the first time the Draetus has sort of not picked up things or picked up things weirdly or, you know, whatever. So, right. Um, excuse me. Um, try- you know they're trying to figure out what's going on here um in the meantime you have Starbuck kind of you know uh i'm not so is she the keg of Pegasus? because like she seems to be in a in a it, i in think a, so yeah okay, I
1: think so yeah
0: Because um, she's certainly in some you know a command type position and like but the people under her don't really seem to respect her, the pilots. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get that apparently, you know, people who aren't really Pegasus crew, you know, don't need to be told things. And so she gets really angry when she finds out these raptors are missing. And that's, that's sort of what made me question because, like, like, the raptors are missing and she gets real pissed that she didn't know about it. And, like, and apparently it was on a training mission. So it wasn't even, like they were doing something potentially dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, other than sort of the normal dangers of training and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and training is her background too. So, right. Cause like, that's, that's how Zach got killed. Right. She was a trainer. Right. And put, allowed him, you know, passed him when she shouldn't have kind of thing. So, you know, she's, uh, you know, she's got this problem, um, not just with, authority, like, not just in the people above her, but also in the people below her who don't respect her, um, respect her own authority as well. And, yeah. which puts it into a different little bit of a perspective as well, because you know, before she was, like, maybe the best of the pilots, right? Until she had to give the stein over to, uh, Kat. Mm-hmm. Um, but she wasn't really in command until, she was made the keg right so Mm -hmm. there's a different thing going on here where now as the person in charge like she's finding out what it means when people don't listen to you sure in a way Right. Um, right? which i feel like adds to the problem right like this is like adding to her own frustration and maybe even making her a little more uh I don't know what the word is off the top of my head, but, uh, you know, aggressive towards Garner, maybe. Right. Um,
1: well, and there's the added kind of, you know, uh, mind games that Garner plays with, like, where apparently, you know, uh, he's the one encouraging his pilots to not tell her things. And then, right. uh, you know, calling her out for not knowing what's going on, you know? Right. So he's you know further you know stirring the pot by creating this situation where she's sort of bound to fail and you know have to be reprimanded in front of the crew and and he gets to do that and everything
0: and and the flip side of that coin is that he's apparently got people informing on her Mm -hmm. to him so like he hears these sort of snide remarks she makes about him right you know uh off the cuff just sort of blowing steam but she's doing it in front of right. people who report to her right. and they go right. sort of over her head about right it. and so and based
1: on a situation that he's sort of manipulated to you know right. set up her set her up in the first place
0: um but i do want to point out in all of this that there is that one and i don't i don't know her name the other female pilot who like is helping her try to yeah i don't know if we get a name through.
2: for her actually um
0: So there is, there is a sense where maybe like, like there are at least some pilots who seem to be, you know, willing to sort of like work with her and look past Mm -hmm. the whole Pegasus Galactica, you know, BS that has been, you know, kind of with us from the beginning, you know, since the two ships came over. Um, I would liken that maybe to, uh, uh, What's his name? The new uh deck chief yeah. for Galactica. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you know, who we know has a civilian background. I ca I wish I could remember his name, but um, Laird. Right, Laird, thank you. Um Yeah, where you know, we know he has a sort, you know, a civilian background or whatever, but like he doesn't and and maybe because he has a civilian background, he he doesn't really seem to get involved with uh You know, the sort of hardline political stuff of like, this is my ship and that's your ship, you know, whatever. Like, you know, he just kind of, he's more the like, oh, this is cool, like, let's work together attitude. And so I don't think that's everyone on Pegasus Mm -hmm. by far, but like, you at least see like this one pilot working with Starbucks as kind of like someone who's at least willing to say, like, okay. She's the CAg and and my boss, and like, yeah, I'd rather help try to like rescue these raptor pilots than not, right you know right, um so yeah,
1: right, you have so those w- like, those individuals willing to reach across the aisle, even if the culture is still kind of antagonistic between the two mm-hmm. um yeah,
0: um so yeah, so i mean the the sort of broad plot centers around right the disappearance of the Raptors and, and, you know, the attempt to go rescue them, or at least to find out what happened to them. Um, and, you know, this is, of course, just another opportunity for Starbuck and Commander Gardner to butt heads because mm-hmm. Starbuck, um, even really before she can, like, tell him, like, she gets sent to her quarters um, under guard and then you know Lee talks to her and she tells him sort of her ideas about what's going on and and the fact that she thinks there's a trap and that you know it's an attempt to lure uh the pegasus uh you know out and destroy it mm-hmm. uh um, Garner of course is convinced that the, see so I I don't know like maybe maybe this is like the engine room Thing right, like I, like you certainly don't see Admiral Kane falling for this type of trick, mm-hmm. and I don't even think like, like I, like if Fisk didn't fall for it, it might be because he's too much of a weakling
2: mm-hmm. to fall for it. Mm-hmm.
0: But like, I also feel like, like his his better his better sensibilities as a wink as a weakling would have like won over and like his survival been more willing would have to like kicked, kicked in yeah, right yeah right like like. But you get Garner, who's you know try like in some sense really trying to just prove himself against the pilots, right because mm-hmm. you have to wonder, and, and I'm totally projecting here, so like feel free to rein me in, but he already doesn't like Starbuck, and part of the reason as we get from like Lee, so Lee's like, oh, you know, well she is at least a heck of a good Viper pilot. Mm -hmm. And like, that seems to like set Garner off like even more like, Oh, what? Like I should just give her free reign or whatever, because you know, she can fly a Viper, you know, really well or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and like he goes on his little rant about the snipes and, you know, maybe being a snipe is different, you know, than being a Viper jockey, no flashy stunts, no flying by the seat of our pants. The engine room is like a finely tuned watch and everything in it needs to be monitored and maintained and blah, 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 blah. So that's true, you know, from his perspective or whatever. And like, I mean, I'm not doubting the fact that like the engine needs to run like a finely tuned watch. At the same token, I feel like he's, he's trying to prove himself against those viper pilots Mm -hmm. and of course like like he's saying this about starbuck right like that's kind of the the example that's dangled before him to which he's responding Mm -hmm. but if he feels that way about her then he's also got to feel that way about lee Mm -hmm. as another of these flashy flying by the seat of our pants viper pilots right who not he's not the best one but he's up there Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. like But then also, so is Adama, you know, Admiral Adama, Mm -hmm. because that's how he came up as well. Right. And, and that might, you know, and his son is a Viper pilot and almost was daughter-in-law or whatever, you know, was, is a, you know, is, is Starbuck. And so, you know, you've got this antagonism towards Viper pilots and you, and, you know, this idea that you know, they're flashy and fly by the seat of pants. So kind of he's responding to all of them, mm-hmm. like not just Starbucks, right. but also to Lee and to Adama and sort of saying, you know what? I know better, you know, you guys just sort of wing it, but I have everything sort of under my thumb and yeah. know what I'm talking about. And so I think a lot of what drives him in this episode is is that desire to say you know hey we engine boys we can run this thing better than you Mm -hmm. are doing
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um and so that turns into hubris Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know of not listening to adama and sending a recon mission first yeah um and instead just deciding to to jump and you know we're gonna go get our boy like you can you know, you can do your flyby is all you want, but we're going to go get, you know, our pilots, you know, our Raptor pilots and bring them back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, yeah. And so I, I don't know. I feel like that's that's a big part of where his, you know, desire to go do that and, and sort of ignore Adama's orders and right. um, place Lee under arrest. Right. Uh even after he's been relieved and and like, I don't know, I don't know all of the, you know, proper protocols of military, you know, t- taking over and, and, you know, I mean, it's not the first time where we've seen someone relieve or try to relieve, you know, a superior officer of their command. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, it doesn't seem to ever work out very well. No. Right. Like, <laughs> no, I mean. Right. Uh crashed down, got shot.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Uh Garner, you know, dies later, but that's you know right. we'll we'll get to that part. But you know, like it it's just like yeah, it just doesn't ever does seem to work out that, that great. Right. Um no, it's and, always and a kind of
1: just, nobly intended but ultimately doomed course of action, yeah. you know.
0: And and maybe that's just Partly because, like, by the time you have to take that sort of action, like, things have already persist- precipitated right. to a point where, like, you know, you can't really, you know, you can't really do anything else. And so it was kind of a last course of action right. anyway. Like, right. And maybe, and rightfully so. Like, you right. shouldn't just have people relieving right. their superior officers of duty for the heck of it. But um,
1: Right. It's a sign of sort of desperation.
0: Right, Um. Um, and you see that sort of indecision on Sergeant At Arms' face. Like you do, get the sense that he there is actually a deliberation going on there. And as you might expect, he chooses to go with the guy who's in charge of the Pegasus, who you know, which is his commander. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, Lee, who's sort of a, a, I almost said like invading force or whatever. (laughs) I mean, it's not quite that, but you know it, it. it came close to it once. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever. So, um, yeah. But yeah, I, I, you know, of course, then Garner jumps the Pegasus and very, very quickly find out, oh, wait, Starbucks was right. Um, it is a trap. Right. And.
1: Right. and And I feel like. Of course, you know, that's what's going to happen. And you kind of feel like Garner should have been able to see that of like, why would you think that your engine room expertise makes you qualified for other types of experiences? Like, like, okay, like maybe everything is finely tuned in the engine room, but this isn't the engine room and that's not how it works. And like, it doesn't take like a genius to really see that, Oh, things work differently here because they're not, You know, they're not machines, they're people, Um, you know, and, you know, it kind of, there's an echo of it at the end when Baltar is talking about not becoming like the Cylons, like, that's kind of what he's saying is like, you know, they're not, we're not machines, and you can't treat people like machines, um, because that's just not how it's going to happen. And that's kind of Garner's mistake is, you know, thinking that he can sort of just arrange and manipulate you know his his personnel the same way that he does with like the pieces of an engine and stuff um but there but at the same time is that's kind of you feel like that's like an obvious mistake I also feel like you hear about stuff like that like you hear about um like you know managers or executives who come into new jobs and like clean house of old people that they didn't hire. Like, not because those people weren't good, but because they didn't hire them. Like, and just the simple fact of you're not the, the person that I feel like I have real control and authority over, that therefore yeah. you have to go. You know, like, I feel like Garner's kind of like that. Like, you know, he, it's not even that he like clearly his methods aren't better for the situation he's in. It's more like you said, that hubris of if I'm going to be in command, then I'm going to be in command of the people that I choose to be and in the way that I choose to be. And it's all going to be sort of arranged just so um, to suit me rather than coming in and being willing to sort of improvise and work with what you have and, find a style within the people who are there and everything. Yeah. And being so sure that because it worked for you in a different situation, it'll work for you in every situation, regardless of circumstance. Um,
2: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: yeah. Which is not, it is ignoring that human element. You know, like you know, to say that, oh, if everybody just thought about it logically, they would all agree exactly like I do. And it's like, well, no, you know, people are different and people have different styles and one approach doesn't work for everybody. And certainly, you know, you can't run different sections of the ship in the same manner and expect to get, you know, a good result from it.
0: Sure. 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 Um, so yeah, so he, and, and so part of the problem too, is that when things don't go as expected, right, he gets, so they get, um, nuked right off the bat, right. right? Which appears to be what sets off, you know, this whole breach that, you know, is also like, there's something tied with all of the you know the nuclear rea- you know explosion and then like there's a hull breach and the coolant pressure leak or something and you know whatever going on and he's trying to like get into the nitty-gritty of like mm-hmm. over the phone over the communication device there like of all right what are we you know what needs to happen and he's like oh they're not listening they're not listening they don't seem to understand and so like as he's losing more and more control over the situation as a whole Mm
2: -hmm.
0: he gets he gets pulled into like okay i need to go down there to show them what to do and lee who of course has you know the example of his father and and maybe common sense Mm -hmm. um is like that's like you can't do that like you need to take care of everything and you need to let the people who are you know Right. Who you're ordering, you know, either get the job done or not get the job done. But like you can't you can't just go do everything yourself, but Garner doesn't see it that way. It it's more like because that's the one thing he knows he can control, right, he abandons everything else, including his post, and puts Lee in charge. Right. Who, you know, thirty seconds ago he it's had like, just had under arrest. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Um,
1: Well, and I also feel like leaving, um, having Garner promoted to being, like, the commander, like, kind of creates, like, a multiple, you know, multiple different problems because not only are you putting someone in charge, like, of command who is maybe not really either qualified or suited or experienced for it or whatever, um, but... I also get the sense of it's not just that like when he calls down to the engine room, it's not just that they're not listening to him. It's like, they don't understand what he's saying. And you, uh, the impression I get is that when he vacated the engine room, he left that without a suitable replacement for him. Mm. You know, like, again, it goes back to this problem of like a shallow bench of like, it's not just, we don't have anyone to command the Battlestar, but if you take the engine guy out of his department and, you don't really have any good successors for him. Like, there's nobody that he can trust to leave the engine room, you know. Like, so all of his his experience there is now lost because you've taken him out and put him somewhere else. So it's almost like, even though maybe it wasn't his choice to abandon that post, it's almost like that's already been abandoned to begin with. Like, and by moving him you're not solving the command problem and now you're creating a problem in the engine room where, you know, he's the only one who can go down to fix it. Um, Sure. So,
2: like... Right. So there's 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 an aspect
1: of abandoning his post, but there's also, I think, in the end, something that I think we can see as, like, kind of noble about what he does because it's abandonment of the post but leaving it in the hands of someone that he eventually comes to realize like I think is better qualified for it and going back to the thing that he actually knows how to do and can be the guy to save them in the engine room and you're leaving you know that's kind of how I read it is like He's been a stubborn, arrogant guy, but when they're about to be nuked, he has that final honest realization of, Lee, why don't you just do this and I'll go do what I know how to do. Yeah. And it kind of works out for everybody. Whereas if he'd stayed in command, they could have all died under his leadership, you know, because he wouldn't yeah. necessarily know how to get them out of that situation.
0: Sure. Sure. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. Um, all right, so a couple dots. So yeah, like when he when he goes, you're right. Like I I do think there's a realization there of like it's not just like he runs away and and leaves Lee to sort of pick up the pieces. Right whatever like he does actively like hand over command and say like you're in charge Mm -hmm. i need to go take care of this and i think you're right like i think there is there probably is a certain level of incompetence as far like maybe maybe he was just never expecting to be you know commander and so he just never bothered training anyone in you know to know the things he does or maybe maybe he's just a bad teacher and like Maybe he tried to teach people things and he didn't do it very well. Or maybe there's just no one who has the same knack that he has. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it could be any of it. Like, we don't really know because we don't know who else is down there. And and we don't know their talents or whatever. Um, I, I do think it's a running away in in one sense mm-hmm. of, like... It's the one thing he does know how to control, mm. and since he can't control anything else, like I do think there's that aspect of it. But but you might be right too that he literally is the only one who could fix that, and so it is imperative. If they're going to get out of there at all, it is imperative for him to be the one to go down and and fix it because no one else possibly could. But I don't like. I don't think those are necessarily mutually exclusive. Right. <laughs> right. Um, like I think he could be the one the only one able to fix it and also be running away from his duty as the commander. Sure. <laughs> um, so he does put Lee in charge though. And and Lee does have that sort of, oh crap moment mm-hmm. of, you know, I have the con, mm-hmm. but, you know, think, you know, thinks very quickly on his feet and gets, uh, you know, sort of has a plan already in place and it's so what i'm curious about and like i'm having my suspicions, but i guess i'm wondering like is this just a plan that he comes up with or like is this something where like he's thinking back to what do they call it war college or Mm. whatever right um you know like okay i've played this scenario out before and like this is the textbook way to do it or is it Nope, that you know, this is I. I'm really just sort of pulling stuff out of wherever and hoping it works. And so, what do I do? Well, I can't just sit here and let all three of them batter me. So let's take one of them out of the picture and see where we can go from there. You know, maybe that'll buy us enough time to do whatever. Um, Right. You know. So, uh, and honestly, like it even starts before that because. Even before he takes the con, he's the one who orders Starbuck to get into a Viper and go out, right? right. Like, like he he's already, like, sort of preparing for mm-hmm. it, even though he doesn't know that he's going to... I mean, I presumably he doesn't know that he's going to become, you know, commander. Right, um, right. So, even, like, that kind of thing, like, it's just, like, it's more about making sure... The pieces are in place so that if you need them, then yeah. they're there. And and ignoring, you know, instead of, you know, what Garner does, which is, you know, oh, things didn't go my way and now I don't know what to do. It's, okay, things aren't going my way. What can I do, you know, to sort of make them better? Right. Um, Right, and, even if it's not perfect, you know, right. Like how I plan.
1: And not letting the the personal conflict determine the best course of action. Like Garner can't yeah. stand Starbuck, so he undermines and blocks her in being able right. to do her job effectively. Like, yeah, is Starbuck like a pain in the butt and caught, you know, troublemaker? Yes, but she's also the best pilot, and if you have her under arrest, she can't be the best pilot. Um, whereas, like Lee, has conflict with Starbuck. You know, like even in this episode, he has conflict with Starbuck. But when the moment an attack comes, you drop that and say, "Get in your cockpit," you know. And you know the conflict doesn't necessarily go away, and it doesn't necessarily fix the the personal problems. But you kind of he he's not refusing to use all of the resources that he has, like, available to him.
0: Right. Um. And
1: in a way, I feel like that's more of a kind of military machine attitude than what Garner does. Like, in a way, like, it's Garner who's worried about the petty conflict. They, you know, like... You know, he he acts as though he's all Mr. Logical, but, you know, he's the one who will, like, you know, not use what Starbuck is actually good at. Whereas, you know, Lee is kind of, like, following, I guess, more of the protocol situation of if I have good pilots, I'm going to use them. And it doesn't matter what sort Mm -hmm. of personal issues we have between us. And we can figure that out after the whole battle is done and everything
0: yeah yeah no and i think you're right like there is there is a sense in which you i mean even you even use like military machine right like there's that sense in which it maybe is supposedly like a fine-tuned engine or whatever but at the same time like there is a sense where like it's more of like A duct taped engine. uh, Well, it doesn't. Yeah,
1: it allows for creativity and improvisation, and people having responding to their situation in real time to make a good decision. Like it, it's like you have a system in place so that people have the guidelines, but then they're allowed to, you know, make it up sort of along as they go along within those you know, guidelines and everything.
0: Right. Um,
1: Which is like, if, if Garner is the extreme of rules and guidelines and Starbuck is the extreme of like, you know, wild, crazy human ingenuity, like maybe Lee is the kind of midpoint between the two, you know, who has a bit more structure than Starbuck, but who can still kind of, recognize the human element and what needs to be
0: done um i mean but there also is a sense and i think this is maybe what you were getting at too is is that i mean for what it's worth garner does save the ship like he 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 kind of is the, you know, you know he, he's kind of right in the sense that he does need to be the one to go do it because it the, you know, the people who are down in the room the snipes who are, you know, so good at their job, supposedly that he's sort of defending earlier,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, can't get the job done. Right. And, and he needs to be the one to go do it. um So, you know, to his credit, like he does do that. And I think, that's what Lee sort of realizes and puts in his report. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is, so you get... You, we don't hear exactly what Starbuck says about him. We can guess, you know. <laughs> right, uh, But, you know, Adama, you know, Admiral Adama, um, you know, says that Lee was pretty generous mm-hmm. in his account of Garner's actions. And... Maybe he was, but at the same time, you know, Lee is kind of like, yeah, like, I don't, I don't know that we would have got out of there without him. So Starbuck had her perspective and I had mine. And Starbuck's perspective is he was a jerk and, uh, you know, tried to over control things. And that's true. That's not wrong. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when push came to shove, he did give up his life to make sure that they could get out of there. And that's what he knew how to do and what he was able to do, and he did it. So, um, you know, there's that aspect of it. So, uh, you know, I think that's part of, you know, the reason why Lee then gets the commander uh, Mm -hmm. promotion so shortly after being promoted to major. Mm -hmm. um, Not sure I'd want to be the commander of Pegasus right? all of the stuff that's gone on given the mortality but, rate <laughs> right um, sort of a
1: defense against the dark arts at least the position recent... of battlestar
0: Galactica. Right. right
1: you get your you get your the, month or whatever and then c- it's commander
0: like... of, yeah commander of the dark arts
1: yeah
0: right? yeah um yeah like but also i i wonder cuz there's the question that admiral Adama asks Lee. Of you know, what do you think uh Garner's flaw was? Mm-hmm. Right. And Lee's response um was you know, kind of what you said, that you know, he he looked at people as though they were machines and and forgot they you know, they were people mm-hmm. or whatever, however it is he phrases it, right? And I kinda wonder I mean, obviously, you know, the writers came up with that answer, you know, so that he could be commander or whatever. But like sure. let, let's say so one of one of the books that I'm reading for uh my thesis work mm-hmm. is uh Narrative and Freedom Freedom by Gary Saul Morson. Mm-hmm. And and part of his argument um he comes up with a concept called side shadowing
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, which is opposed to like foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Um so and he talks a lot about like the Russian writers, um, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy mostly, mm-hmm. um, but several you know others in there as well, and and how they sort of cultivate a sense in their writing of, um, you know, things that could have happened in the moment. So, so in you know, a lot of works, you get like this foreshadowing, and and so, um, Morrison's sort of complaint is that, um, it it becomes inevitable in the story mm. that, a, you know, a thing will happen because you have this foreshadowing happening mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Whereas Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, you know, the way they wrote was more, um, they didn't do foreshadowing, but they also, you know, the way the characters talk and the way, you know, things acted and, and sort of narr- narration of the story um, presented like, different ways that the story can go kind of at all these points. And, and he gets into like, you know, how war and peace was written and how, you know, it doesn't really have like a standard plot structure. It's just kind of like, like Tolstoy wrote it to sort of model real life. And right. And that this, so he calls that side shadowing that like in each moment, there's sort of all these possibilities Mm -hmm. and different way things can go. So like,
2: interesting.
0: If, if we were side shadowing, you know, Lee's answer Mm -hmm. to his father's question, like, if he had answered something, like, like, say he would answered just like, oh, well, you know, Garner was just an idiot and didn't really know what was going on. Like, that's kind of true. But, like, right. it doesn't really tell, it doesn't, there's no insight behind it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just kind of like you're, you're talking about his personality and and whatever. Um. But he didn't, you know, Lee answers, he uh, uh, You know he he didn't realize that he was you know (laughs) running people instead of a machine, and so that was his flaw. And so that becomes like the insightful. So I'm I'm just I I wonder if like this was a predestined thing by Admiral Adama that he was going to promote Lee no matter what, or if it kind of depended on that answer. Depended on
1: the answer, right?
0: Um, I mean, I'd like to think that it depends on the answer because I feel like that's more integrity, and I think overall admiral adama has integrity mm-hmm. like even if i don't always agree with him mm-hmm. like i feel like at least he comes from a point of integrity and and trying to do the right thing mm-hmm. um
2: right but right
0: i don't know it just it always it makes me curious when i when i watch that uh about right you if know, he'd
1: answered it differently
0: yeah you know? what if he had done something different right. in that moment right i don't know
1: anyway well and it it, at this point, you know, if you haven't, with the assumption that if you're seeing this for the first time and don't know where the story's going, going, um, it is an interesting choice because you're at this change in that it's the first. We have had this series of Pegasus commanders who've been, you know, within the Pegasus structure, but now it's the first time where the switch is happening to Adama appointing one of his own guys to go over and run the ship. And there is this kind of tension of how's this going to go? You know, cause on the one hand it's like we've had so much conflict with Pegasus that you could see it going really badly, you know, of it just mm-hmm. being a, a larger version of the kind of resistance they gave starbuck and some of the others but you could also see it in a way of well we've had three pegasus commanders now who have not done a good job like any of them um and so maybe there's like maybe there's a hopeful change there of bringing in somebody you know not just maybe more competent but also like an outsider to run it might actually like improve the situation but, like, at this point, it kind of could go either way. So, like, does does Adama's decision depend on how he answers in the sense of, is he ready enough yeah. to make that decision? Or do I go again with whoever the next highest person in Pegasus is? You know? Right. And that's the call. <laughs> that Like, it's kind of, those are his two real choices. Um, sure. And maybe depending on... Lee's response to the situation is how he determines which of those he does.
2: Yeah,
0: maybe. I don't know.
1: But yeah, I get the same impression that when he asks Lee, like, what's Garner's flaw like, he's interested in the answer. You know, it's not, it's not just out of curiosity. It's like, right. there's... There is a sense of a test here of, like, maybe there's not a right or a wrong answer, but there, there is a sense in where, like, he's feeling Lee out to see what was your conclusion from this whole thing. And let me get a sense of kind of where you are in terms of your ability to sort of understand and lead other people
0: and everything. Um, so, I mean, the upshot is now Lee is commander of the Pegasus Mm -hmm. with the instruction of basically don't screw it up. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, you'd like to think that he would try not to anyway, Uh but, you know, it is what it is. It doesn't hurt to say Uh, it. So, uh... We should probably talk a little bit about the galactica side of things, um, and we're not going to do it in only in our five last minutes, five minutes. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, so the big, the big. So there's sort of two things going on here, right? There's like the specific incident of the stowaway, uh-huh. um, who we learn is named Raya. Uh, so she she stows away on like a some kind of cargo crate or something. Um, You know, uh, she's pregnant looking for Doc Cottle. Uh, Callie and the chief find her uh, in, in the cargo hold or whatever. Um, Yeah. And, uh, you know, presumably bring her to Cottle. Uh, Meanwhile, Meanwhile, on Colonial One, (laughs) uh, you have Rosalyn sort of tending to her day-to-day, you know, uh, administrative business and um, being interrupted by Tori, who's her new uh, assistant, Mm -hmm. you know, replacing Billy, but not really a replacement for Billy. Right, Um,
1: Right, and that's a, a good point, is they make a point of how different she is. From Billy, you know, yeah. like, Billy, the kind of, you know, somewhat naive and maybe inexperienced, but also like, like, just intuitive voice of conscience and, you know, support and guidance and all those things, you know, and then you have a uh, very, you know, cut and dry, not offering as much Uh, guidance in terms of what's the right thing to do. Like, she doesn't necessarily offer right and wrong, but she's very hyper-competent with the, like, political stuff. You know, like,
2: Mm.
1: how to run a campaign. And, you know, that she was, like, involved in her local politics and knows how to pull for, you know, um, you know, civilian opinions on various, you know, issues and everything and kind of how to stage and maneuver politically to, you know, run your campaign the best possible way. And those are all the things that she's sort of bringing to the table. Um, is this kind of like political savvy, um, but not necessarily, which like, I don't get the sense that like Billy really ever, you know, that didn't seem to be a thing that, you know, Roslyn Moore leaned on him for like, almost like like advice and counsel more so than, yeah. you know. Um, not that he couldn't have done those things, but I don't get the sense that he had, like, you know, the type of experience that, that Tori seems to have.
0: Right. No. And, well, and so the interesting thing there, right, is that Billy was... Roslyn's uh assistant as the education secretary right so he was the assistant to a fairly minor functionary of you know the administration of of uh ADAR's administration Mm -hmm. like you know pretty far down on the totem pole like and probably that's right it I mean it almost certainly was his first job right right like that's the sense that we get yeah At least, or your know, first political job maybe like yeah. he might have been a burger flipper. right or right right Caprica. but right. like his first real like his job first, yeah, yeah his first political job um and and like that makes sense you know that that your first political job would be like the assistant to some really you know for, you know, number forty three in line right, to the right. president, you know, right. no chance of whatever. So, so, like, had, it does kind a, of make sense. At
1: a Schrute moment of assistant to the regional manager, no? yeah, right, <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly.
0: Assi- assistant. To right, he's the not the even like secretary. assistant
1: secretary of education. It's like assistant to the secretary. Like it's like right. you can't get right, much right, further right. down the totem pole than.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. So you know, she becomes president and brings him with her. Right. Like, that's not, it's not based on his value as like a politically savvy, right. you know, assistant or campaign manager right. or anything like that. Because it wasn't a campaign position. It right. was appointed, right? Like it, like right. she was appointed the s- secretary of the education whatever department. And, and she hired Billy or Billy was hired for her. Right. You know, and and that's just how that kind of happened. And so you could see coming out of that as, as being a minor, like, she probably also doesn't have like a huge staff, you know, like, right. I mean, I don't know how big the colonial education, you know, department was mm-hmm. and what services it provided, but you know, I mean, it's not necessarily the largest aspect of the government, um, you know, certainly not like the military or like secretary of state or, you know, whatever equivalents they would have for those types of positions. Um, right. You know, more, more prestigious or high ranking or however you want to look at them. So it also makes sense that she would be a little more, uh, you know, close, you know, more intimate in sort of a a confidential way Mm -hmm. you know with him um and and have that you know whatever and then i also think there was sort of a a motherly guiding aspect and as we've noted before she saw him as a potential future Mm adar-esque person to fulfill the presidency so like there's like we again I don't want to make it creepy, mm-hmm. but we know the relationship we ha- she had with Adar. And so, right. you know, if she's looking at him in, in that way, I don't mean romantically, but like if she's looking at him as like a young Adar, like there's also an affection
2: mm-hmm.
0: component, you know, to that, mm-hmm. that she's going to have for Billy. So right. like all of those things sort of combined. Now, she's the president. And so, of course, who are you going to get to help reelect the president? You know, who's going to be your assistant now? Like, okay, we're hiring not for the secretary of education, but we're hiring for the president. You're going to have someone who's already got political experience and. You know, probably some of the most political, you know, probably some of the most experience in that sort of respect, you know, out of the entire colonies, because everyone else is dead, mm-hmm. right like there's not going to be that many more people right? you know with more experience maybe than Tory in that respect, more right. sort of assistant and campaign right. experience right um, in that respect, so right,
1: which um, I think is another huge point too is it's not just okay, we have a vacancy, we need someone who's going to assist the president, but it's the president who's running for reelection. You know, right. it's exactly. somebody, it's not just who's a good assistant, it's who's going to win me this election, who's going to help me win this thing. And you're coming, so you're going for, like, whatever are the qualities that make for a good campaign manager, you know, and let your imagination run wild. That's, you know, at least as far as whoever's left, Tory apparently is, you know, the the one who gets chosen. Um Right. You know, and so, yeah, there is a kind of... She comes in with her binders of research and her little, you know, business suit and looks very polished and professional and, you know, uh, serious about what she's doing and taking, again, like you said, for very good reason, taking a completely different approach than Billy took in the in the job. Um, so... Sorry, it's my radiator pipes clanging. <laughs>
0: um
1: um so yeah, it it so it, it's an interesting I find it I kind of find it fortuitous that um uh if they didn't because we talked last time about how Billy the actor left maybe for reasons more of behind the scenes things of an actor wanting to move on rather than like, it's not the, it doesn't seem to be the kind of thing of we always planned to sort of kill him off at this point. It seemed like a kind of more of a, a improvised we're going with the situation kind of decision, but Mm. you know, so maybe that doesn't always make for the best, you know, that creates problems with the storytelling, but I actually think that if they were going to do it, this is a perfect time to do it because we're getting into like an election storyline and it's like Mm. what better time to introduce a new character who's a campaign manager into Mm. and a new and so rather than having you know billy the assistant the conscience to keep Roslyn on the moral straight and narrow we have like a real political you know voice now like who's Sure, behind her, sort of helping her you know <laughs> arrange herself in position for this election um so from like a storytelling point, I actually really like that she enters at this point. Um, mm. I feel like that kind of works out
0: yeah sure i don't I don't really have a strong opinion one way or the other on that aspect of it, but I don't disagree. <laughs> Um. So yeah. Uh. Let's see. So okay. So you've got again, sort of, the two things is you you have the um, young woman looking for help from Doc Cottle to uh, get an abortion, mm-hmm. which I don't I don't think we mentioned that aspect of before, but that's that's what she's looking for. Right. Um. And then you have Roslyn's campaign, and of course these two things sort of come together right right? um so you have the geminese delegate uh who um is like like we get the explicit mention from tori that the Geminis and others are supporting roslyn
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um so you get the Geminis delegate coming to her saying hey this girl ran away from her parents and is looking for an abortion which we find you know extremely distasteful and actually not just distasteful but like is against their religion right like this is this is the evangelical you know right. pro life stance right, right basically right um uh they want and and like even like stronger than just <clears throat> uh stronger than, than just even like you know, the baby has a right to life or whatever, mm-hmm. but um even mentions that like we I don't we don't know how old Raya is, right? Like I don't think we're told. No. Um but the Gemini's delegate and I can't remember her name, um says something about her being the property of her parents. Right. So like
2: right which
0: is an interesting like it's even more interesting so typically when when you have these debates around abortion you know you're talking about you know property of the body and and it's usually couched in uh you know woman has the right to her own body and whatever but this isn't even like it's not even like like the counter argument is, okay, well but then the baby has the right to its body even though it's unborn and right, whatever. Right, right. And so you don't have the right to kill. Like, but that's that's not even like the argument they take here. It's like even more nefarious about the woman not mm-hmm. having a right to her own body because she's not even
1: She's not the a owner person of her own herself. Right,
0: right. She doesn't even own her own body right, in this
1: right. case. Right. She um, has no rights, basically, like you know, yeah, or at yeah.
0: least according to Geminese law, right. which right. is apparently in conflict with, like, colonial law. So right. this is, like, a federalist issue, right? Like, this is state rights versus, right. you know, federal, right. whatever. Right, um, Right. Which, kind, which is... Kind of, to put it into our... Right, terms.
1: which is, like, you know, um, one thing when you have separate colonies with their own geographic space but now you've taken all those people and jumbled them up into this fleet and so how do you have how do you how do you maintain those states rights when you no longer have separate states like now you just have the remnants of what used to be
0: like ships yeah right
1: right which i don't even necessarily know that all of the ships are It's not even necessarily divided, like all the Geminis are on one ship, all the whatever are over here. Maybe there's some of that, but there are also, I I I get the sense that there's a certain amount of mingling. So you don't even have separate space from each other. It's just a sense of because she and her parents were Geminis, the Geminis politicians or religious leaders or whatever have opinions about what they're (laughs) doing and, you know and expect rosalind to sort of enforce those states rights in quotes you know
0: yeah um and what's uh what's interesting too is like i i don't know how they do it like i i imagine there are probably some ships that are if not completely like primarily of like one colony or another, just cause that's the way it works. Right. Like these are a lot of private ships, Right. but then you definitely have like cloud nine, right? which is, you know, a luxury ship. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have people from all, all over, yeah. you know, who were originally on that or whatever. Yeah. And who knows how much transfer has gone on, Right. you know, in between it. But, um, I also wonder like, like, like today on, on earth, you know, here, mm-hmm. uh, you know you have ships at sea have to be sailing some kind of country's flag Mm. if i mean or if they're not then they're generally considered pirates right Right. like they're they're you know sailing under the flag of some country and so you know it's property or or you know uh uh basically you're like part of you're under that country's laws Mm -hmm. or whatever if you're on that ship or whatever um I mean, that's not always true, because, like, if you're in international waters and certain things don't apply or whatever, but um, I wonder if that applies to, like, the spaceships of, like, BSG as mm-hmm. well. Like, if, if the ships themselves are, like, flying under, you know, like, like, the Galactica itself would be flying under maybe the colonial flag, you know, like right. as a as a, you know, part of the colonial, you know, war fleet or whatever, mm-hmm. but, or you know, defense fleet. Um, but maybe, you know, do the do the individual ships, like, are they flying under their own colonial flags or whatever? Right. I, I don't know that we ever get an answer to that, but that is sort of an interesting, like, is there an interstellar law, just like there's like a international law or, or intercolonial law mm-hmm. of, you know, like that. Right. And maybe that's where, so maybe it's not even so much of whether everyone on the ship is from that particular colony, but then it becomes more of a, you know, what, what colony is that ship flying under Mm -hmm. um, in that respect? So I I don't know. That's all speculative. Like, I I don't, we don't get an answer. Like that's fodder, fodder for head cannon, but um, anyway. Um, Right. So you get the delegate sort of demanding, that the girl be returned, presumably, with you know, still pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Roslyn, you know, is like, Well, her request for uh, uh, asylum is still under advisement. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> asylum, which the girl asked for because doc coddle kind of slips it in right like, <laughs> like like yeah. i i love that scene where he like kind of suggests and then he kind of like looks at Inama and then kind of turns and walks away like yeah. this is none of my business right like, right <laughs> like after interfering and clearly giving her the right words to say right. to kind of make it official um that she's looking for asylum um Yeah. No, Cuddle does
1: a lot of, and I think you mentioned in our notes too, that he has apparently this kind of reputation for certain services, you know? And so you definitely get a sense of Cuddle being in his quiet little way. You know, is it rebellious or I don't know, but like he is doing what he thinks is right quietly under the radar when he knows Even, like, when Adama wouldn't approve or whatever, um, you get Coddle kind of, you know, slipping those things in there whenever he can. And and he's not going to be told how to be a doctor, you know, and how to sort of treat his patients and everything.
0: Right. Yeah, no, it is is his own sort of protest, I think. And, uh, yeah, like... Like, he gets around it by saying, I don't ask a lot of questions, right? Which is perfectly fine. Like, like on the one hand, like, he's a medical doctor and, you know, without, without supporting, like, one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I have my own personal opinions, but, like, you know, from his perspective, it seems like, oh, someone's coming to me with a medical issue, mm-hmm. and so I'm going to handle it in the best way that i can based on his own personal ethics or whatever so like yeah he's he's definitely like i definitely see that as a protest in, in a way but like also doing it in such a way where it's like he's not technically maybe violating any rules so right right you know he can't really be yelled at for it and i mean now that adama has sort of explicitly told him to start asking questions but then you like i can see Cottle getting out of it by saying well you didn't tell me what questions i had to ask right like right. i didn't think to ask that question or whatever you know right i just asked more questions <laughs> um you know and so like you can still sort of see him having that sort. It, it's sort of like that willfully ignorant attitude mm-hmm. in a in a way that Achieves what he wants to achieve without maybe explicitly or defying orders, egregiously or, yeah, defying yeah, orders, yeah. right? Um, right, right. So, um,
1: yeah, and I mean, kind of what I think is interesting about the situation is again, the fact that it's, of course, it's this you know contentious, you know, uh, political issue that comes into conflict right at the moment of her campaign, you know, and, and the conflict within Rosalind of having to choose between her strong beliefs and, uh, well, like there's a few different things pulling her in different directions because there's her, you know, her beliefs are one thing, her desire to win a campaign is another, um, And then there's what's best for the fleet and the future of, you know, humanity and all of those things, none of those things really perfectly align with each other. And so she's sort of having to uh, make this decision while navigating all of those. And, you know, it's that thing of like, she's going to have to, choose between them she can't satisfy all those masters you know or or in trying to satisfy them you end up satisfying nobody so she has to sort of pick something and they're contradictory is really the thing like you either have you know abortion be legal or you don't um and so it's not a kind of thing that she can compromise on it's something that she has to mm. pick a priority and make a choice um so, yeah, that's kind of, you know, as far as well, as far as the plot's concerned, like, I don't even really know that it ever really comes up again. Um, it's more a question of how does Rosalind make this choice and what are those consequences in terms of, like, her political future in the fleet? Um,
0: so yeah and i mean it is one of those things where it's like you know obviously politicians want to control you know the issues that come up right like they want to be the ones to sort of bring up or or not bring up Mm -hmm. things in you know uh political campaigns as as they can and sort of frame them in their own way but clearly this is something that's out of out of their you know out of Rosalind's uh ability to do anything and so what i find interesting is that we actually don't until the very end when when uh, Baltar sort of steps up and announces his own candidacy right we don't actually have anyone else that the geminis delegate can support Mm. like like as far as we know nobody else has right declared their candidacy right so it's kind of interesting that they even say they won't support her because it's like well then who will they support right right like who's gonna be this person that will right well Um, and i feel
1: like they mentioned that zarek is really the only other potential like personality out there but even he knows he can't win (laughs) like that's why that's why he goes to Baltar is I I'm not gonna win this so like yeah she really had no real competition up until this point um which maybe underlies some of her decisions in this because she admits that yeah this decision probably hurt my standing and some of the polls but on the other hand maybe she thought it wouldn't hurt her that badly because there really is nobody else who can run against me, you know, until Baltar throws his name in. Like, that's the surprise, is that she makes this choice thinking that it's not a choice that she likes, but she can probably get away with it. And then the surprise is, oops, Baltar is going to use this as exactly the opportunity he needs to launch himself. Right. Um, you know, so her feeling like this is a calculated but somewhat safe move gets sort of overturned at the end. And suddenly this could like cost her the, you know, the election basically.
2: Yeah.
0: So... I mean, I don't know how much more we need to go into it all. Um, but yeah, I mean that's where we're at. We've got Lee, you know, being promoted to commander of the Pegasus, and we've got Baltar throwing his hat in the ring for the presidency. And uh, yeah, that's where we'll we'll pick up next time, I guess. Right. <laughs> um. So. We should only talk for 40 minutes about Buffy. Think that'll happen?
1: We'll see how it goes. Um, well, let's see how it goes. So starting with... We wanted to start actually with the title, um, Dead Things, because as you pointed out, um, it is a plural. Yeah. Um. You know, it's not... We get one dead thing in this episode, which is, or one obvious, you know, the obvious candidate for the title reference is, you know, Katrina and the fact that, you know, she's mm-hmm. killed in this episode. But, you know, it's not, it's not the dead thing. It's it's dead things, multiple. And so there is this question of why is that and what are the, the, the dead things that are being referenced? Um. So, yeah, I don't know if you had particular ideas in mind, I mean, the Spike Buffy plot is kind of what leaps out to me of, you know, Spike is another dead thing um, or an undead, sure. you know, he's sort of animated, but, you know, is, you know, we they kind of refer to vampires as, you know, dead. And Buffy's done that um, several times, Recently, like in her, in her, whenever they have a fight about their relationship, that's her kind of go-to, um, sort of thing is you can't, you, we can't have a real relationship. You can't really love me. You can't really feel anything. You can't really satisfy me, all these things because you're dead. Um, and you're not capable of all those things. Um, And then, but the kind of flip side of that is that Buffy was dead um, and now she's back. Not exactly like Spike, but, you know, not completely unlike Spike either. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is like, he's kind of flipping it around on her, you know, as kind of saying we're we're drawn to each other because of how we're alike and that's why you keep coming back and, you know, we have this, you know, connection and everything. Um, You know, and potentially it's why he can be, you know, hurting her without, you know, it affecting the chip and everything is that like, what if in a way she's still dead? This is the kind of fear underlying you know that whole thing of what if she came back wrong but what if the sensor's not the chip isn't sensing her because some part of her kind of stayed dead basically and didn't really fully come back to life um so yeah what what kinds of things were you thinking when you brought up the title is there anything that i sort of missed in there or
0: no not necessarily and i didn't have any like i didn't have an agenda with like (laughs) mentioning that i actually it was something that i had never really thought about before
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um so i think you're right like i mean the sort of obvious candidate is katrina and like maybe the demons that like Mm. buffy kills Mm -hmm. you know with with spike's help Um, but yeah, I, I think Spike and Buffy are sort of the way to look at it, um, kind of as you did. Um, and, and Buffy even says to Spike, uh, you know, you don't have a soul. There's nothing good or clean in you. You're dead inside. You can't feel anything real. I could never, you know, be your girl when he, Mm -hmm. you know, that's sort of in the alley by the police station when she's ready to go in and. You know whatever, but I think I think definitely one of the things we're sort of prompted to think about is is kind of what you were saying that like maybe she maybe she's the one dead inside right like she she talks about mm. um you know she says to spike, you can't feel anything real, but then she says about herself. And Tara at the end, and I, I know we were going to talk about this at the end, but mm-hmm. s- to skip ahead there, she says, the only time I ever feel anything is when, and then she stops. Mm-hmm. Presumably, she's going to say is when I'm with Spike. Mm-hmm. But that's basically an admission that she's the same way that she's accusing him of being is not being able to feel anything real, mm-hmm. you know, implying that she's dead inside too. So I, I... I would tend to read it that way. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, you stated it very similarly. So I don't, I think we're
1: on the same page.
0: Yeah. Pretty close there. So, yeah. Um, But yeah, it was, I mean, it honestly wasn't something I had ever really thought about before um, the title. So just kind of occurred to me as we were, you know, looking as I was looking at the title, when we were preparing our notes, um, just kind of was like, Oh, dead things. Like, There's more than one. Right, Hmm.
1: right. Yeah, so. All right. So I want to start with um, the trio and Trina, as you put it, in our continuing thing of band names. Um, And sort of their plot, because obviously they interact with Buffy in that they kind of... uh, what they do has a clear effect on Buffy, but they don't ever really like interact with each other. They're not really, it's kind of what happens is sort of accidental and inadvertently ends up having an effect on the sort of the Buffy side of the plot. But really when the story starts, you know, it's, it's the trio have escaped Buffy. Um, I think it was in the mm-hmm. last episode that she went, She they talked about how she went and, you know, Went found their lair and they had cleared out and everything. Um, So this is the first we're seeing them. They've got a new lair somewhere, Um, you know, found a new place to hang out, Um, you know, which they took all their stuff and they're, you know, unpacking all of their, you know, little memorabilia and everything and, you know, decorating it exactly the same and fighting over where everything goes. Um, But basically like they're, away from Buffy and it's just on to, you know, the next plan, you know, it's sort of like still working on becoming big, bad supervillains and, you know, business as usual and everything. Um, But, okay. So one, one of the things I wanted to point out, and I think this connects to something you wanted to sort of talk about later is the differences that we're starting to see in their, personalities and how they sort of handle themselves in situations um because like even in the beginning of the episode like i'm getting that there's a very definite split between warren on one side and andrew and jonathan on the other um mm. warren to me is becoming much and more much more the leader you know like the guy motivating them you know it's sort of like Andrew and Jonathan are fighting and bickering like brothers, like little kids, you know, and you don't get a real sense of motivated, like direction behind them. Um, you know, and then you get Warren who is, you know, the one who says like, cut it out, quit, you know, acting like babies come over and let me show you what we're going to do next. Um, You know, and obviously they have certain abilities or expertise that they bring to the table, but Warren seems to be the guy that's really like the ringleader behind the whole thing. Sure. Um, So, yeah. And so his plan, you know, the next plan is um, to use this cerebral dampener, which is from the musk gland of a certain kind of demon um you know that puts you know women under a spell and makes them robots basically um which is interesting because it's basically another version of what Warren did bef- did before with his sort soul- like you know uh robot thing you know of yeah again warren the misogynist it's how do i make women just do what i want and be his yeah. sort of, you know, playthings who obey him and um, are kind of just there for his command and his pleasure and everything.
0: Yeah. Well, and so I mean, I wonder. I wonder if the misogynist label is entirely accurate because, not to say that he doesn't treat women badly, mm-hmm. he does. But I just want to mention too, like. What does Warren do? Like, so you you have the cerebral dampener, and Andrew has the gland, right? Mm-hmm. And Jonathan provides the magic,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and Warren does what? Tells them what to do, mm-hmm. right? And then takes it and goes and uses it for his own nefarious purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, which you get the sense that he's. Uh, right he he hasn't told them his plan like right. you get the sense that like this has been his, his plan kind of all along to you know create this cerebral dampener and then not just go pick up a random woman at a bar and right. turn her into a sex slave but that like Katrina was specifically the target but he
1: knows she's gonna be there right yeah this is the right this is the. this
0: is her her like he's probably excuse me he's probably stalked her there before right right like like this is not a surprise that he just happens to go to the bar where she's at right um and then later in the episode again like you have these timey wimey demons Mm -hmm. right that that get called up and a- andrew's the demon guy so he, you you know you know he's the one who did that and well and jonathan's Jonathan the like shapeshifter is, guy who right is mr yeah, shapeshifter yeah. and and what's warren doing he's right. sitting there telling them what to do right, like right. so i i don't mean to say like he's not misogynist he is but like there's also like a pattern of him just sort of abusing and misusing people in general (laughs) as well you know and I think I think that's part and parcel of kind of what you were pointing out that like there is sort of a divide like Mm -hmm. but Jonathan and Andrew don't really notice that right like they don't they're just like oh we're you know this team of evildoers doing evil you know and you know it's not really clear what beyond sort of authority and you know masterminding i guess um warren actually brings to the table right uh right i mean as far as skill goes and yeah
1: early on i felt like we had more of a sense of like he was more the tech guy like because he built the robot and i feel like when they first started like messing when they were messing with buffy wasn't his the thing that like was like a little piece of something that they stuck on to her. Right. Whatever. Like he had this kind of. Which was
0: very similar to the tiny wimey stuff. Sure. Right? Like, so,
1: Right. S- right. Which it, al- almost... It, it almost made me feel like it was the same thing again, even though it turns out not to be. But it has a similar
2: right. kind
1: of feel to it. But yeah, you're right. Like we haven't seen that as much recently and certainly not in this episode. And I feel like that's what if you ask Warren, that would be his, his thing is he is the mastermind. Like I, I, you know, they do the, the grunt work and, you know, the kind of practical, you know, pieces that are necessar- necessary to put the plan in motion, but I'm the planner, you know, mm-hmm. I'm the, I'm the evil genius, the mastermind behind the whole thing. Um, and as is typical of people like that to him, that is like, more important than what anybody else does you know like you don't get a sense that he would acknowledge that maybe they have greater skills than he does but his sort of you know brain power sort of trumps them all um so i feel like that would kind of be his perspective on it but i get the same impression as you that this is definitely a scenario he's had on his mind for a while um that you know uh katrina's gonna be at this you know bar or restaurant at at a particular time um and he knows that and he deliberately doesn't say anything to andrew and jonathan even after they get her like back to the lair he still doesn't say anything to andrew and jonathan um but again you get a sense of like, how, I mean, he would let them have her eventually. So there's not, there's not even a sense of like, this is ours, you know, she's for me or whatever. It's like, no, he'll let them have, you know, but he goes first. And so he, he has a sense of his own rank and authority to sort of, you know, you can have her once I'm done with her.
0: Um, and the question becomes is when will he be done with her?
1: Sure. Maybe. Like that might... Maybe them, never. It may
0: never. Right. 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 And, and like, I wouldn't put him past him to, like, know that. Sure. Like, you can have her when I'm done, which will be never. Right. You know what I mean? Right. He just doesn't say that last part.
2: Right.
0: You could sort of see that being the case. Um, right. Yeah. Right, but it's, yeah. it's kind
1: of a, one of those which is worse, you know, like, which is more, which is more reprehensible in that scenario. Like intending to like, just keep her as his own personal slave forever and kind of use her as bait to keep Andrew and Jonathan doing what he wants them to do. Or the sense of I'm going to use her. And when I'm bored, you can, you can have her then, you know, and like, you know, Like, he's revealing himself to be about as, like, despicable as you can get. Whereas, like, I'm making no excuses for Andrew and Jonathan in this episode. But you have more of the sense of them of, like, once they do the thing, like, once they, like, put spells on you know, girls and get them to be their slaves. Like they wouldn't really know what to do with that once it happened, you know, like they don't have.
0: Well, and and they actually don't like Jonathan's like, wait, so how does this work? Right. Right. And you're not really sure exactly what he's talking about. Right. (laughs) Right. But like,
1: what specifically do you mean? Yeah.
0: but Right.
1: So. Yeah. And again, like, does that, does that make them like, yeah, I'm not necessarily saying that, that, uh, you know, gets them off of any hook or anything. Um, sure. But you don't get that, that same sense of kind of knowing premeditated, you know, uh, Warren knows exactly what he wants and what his plans are. You know, I don't even know what they are, but whatever they are, he knows what they are, you know, Um, Whereas, like, Andrew and Jonathan are more being um, led around by, you know, by Warren's example and, you know, uh, are perfectly willing to do things that they should know are, you know, evil, but don't necessarily have plans beyond that point, you know? Yeah. Um, You know?
0: Yeah. So there's very much a... um uh, Jessica Jones vibe in this episode too. Sure. Of yeah. Where you get the the males, mm-hmm. you know, when confronted with the idea of you know this is rape, right? You know, you're you're doing these things to me, even though you didn't actually get to the point of sexual intercourse. Maybe, mm-hmm. uh, like all of this is against my will, right? Um, and you have the male characters saying, like, well, no, because there is a sense in which you did this willingly, granted, I forced you to do it willingly right, right, but like right. but like for Warren, but you said you the, get words the sense and, that like yeah,
2: yeah,
0: that like he knows and doesn't care mm-hmm. um, which I think is kind of like David Tennant's character and. Right. jessica jones right but for the others you you do get the sense that like i I hesitate to use the word innocent but like thoughtless maybe is a better Mm -hmm. term for it or or you know hadn't thought through the implications
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um and so again like I agree with you like there's no we're not like there's no way to excuse them in that sense but there is a sense in which Warren is more culpable maybe mm-hmm. um to a degree of you know having that plan of have yeah, of of sort of knowing exactly what he's yeah doing um versus uh you know Andrew and and Jonathan just kind of like being giddy and excited about the possibilities, but not really thinking through like the ethical and moral implications of what all this sort of implies. Um Right.
1: It, 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 right. Theirs is more of a, a, you know, a problem of like ignorance, you know, of, you know, um, of not being aware of even what you know it would mean to be consenting like as far as they're concerned it's it's basically the same as like saying the words you know of like uh you know if if you kind of go through these motions that's sort of sufficient whether or not the Emotions and the words were like forced or coerced or whatever. Um,
2: Right.
1: So. Yeah. And, and, you know, you do get that kind of shot of, you know, when she says it's rape and, you know, Jonathan sort of crestfallen, like what? Like that kind of moment of, you know, it, it never, he's appalled by that notion. It never occurred to him that you could read it that way.
0: Well, And it's, I mean, there is a sense, too, in which, like, it gets very dark, like, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you know what I mean? And I, and maybe it's even just, like, from that word on, like, like, but you do get, like, not that it's fun before that, but there is a sense where it's kind of lighter, like, oh, they dressed her, like, you have this girl who's under your control And you dressed her up in a funny costume and made her, like, serve you champagne. Like, Like,
1: cliche French maid kind of. Right.
0: Right. Like, this is, like, the extent of your, you know, nefarious fantasy. Like, you can't really do it. Uh, You know, until Warren kind of gets her alone. And then she sort of snaps out of it and realizes what's going on. And, like, it it turns pretty dark pretty quickly and, and goes quickly from you know, oh my God, what's happening to, you know, you're about to rape me to, you know, killing her. Right. And like that all happens within like the matter of a minute, right. you know, like right. or less.
1: Well, and I think um, you're right that the the use of the word rape there is important because it, it, it jumps from being like the metaphor of the week to like not being a metaphor anymore. You know, like, it was like, we're no longer in the territory of metaphor. We're actually just talking about rape, like, literally. And there's no, there's no pretense of, okay, we're going to use a euphemism for something or we're going to kind of talk subtextually about something. Um, Mm -hmm. It, like, becomes, like, just the basic, like, text of the the story. Right.
0: It's, yeah, it's not subtext. Right. It's actual text. Right.
1: Right. Right. Which is, like... How I think, like, maybe, I mean, I don't know how strongly I want to state this because I've never really thought about it before, but it might be how people like Jonathan and Andrew and people in the real world can convince themselves that this isn't rape because when you use the kind of, like, metaphorical language of way of thinking about it, it, you know, it's not actually something if you can kind of like put it in this little protective bubble of like, oh, well, because we did, you know, this spell on her and because we're kind of evil geniuses hee it's not really, you know, the thing which it really is. You know, we can kind of pretend that it's something else because we're not looking at it that particular way. Um, And if you don't kind of, you know, address it for what it is it gets sort of you know uh the power of it kind of the power of that word kind of gets stripped from the reality of what you're doing
2: yeah
1: you know which i mean obviously we're having that same debate you know like is it you know like to kind of to bring something in the news in like to call something locker room talk. Like, again, Mm. to me is like, that's a metaphor. That's a euphemism. That's a way of talking about something without really talking about it and not really just addressing what it really is, you know, and we can convince ourselves that it's not what it is if we don't use, you know, the word for it you know um you know or we can dismiss it as i think the same way like jonathan and and andrew can kind of write it off as oh this is our kind of you know silly foray into being evil geniuses is the same type of attitude that says we can talk about women however we want and as long as we as long as we associate it with kind of rowdy boys locker room talk it's acceptable and sort of something we can not really you know have to be called on
0: right the whole boys will be boys right kind of attitude right yeah yeah no and and i think you're right like i think that is where jonathan and andrew are coming from um warren though definitely seems more nefarious. Yeah, Um,
1: Warren doesn't necessarily... He hasn't... He's not being, like, self-deluding about it. No. Like, he knows what he's doing. He's just not bringing it up to... He's keeping it kind of under wraps so that Warren and... Or Andrew and Jonathan will sort of go along with him.
0: Yeah. Um... And so on that note, so like Warren's the one who, I mean, they all kind of try to stop her, but he's the one who like really stops her, kills her. Um, and also is the one who sort of starts coming up with plans. But again, even when he's like coming up with plans on how to like fix it, it's like, what can Andrew do? Can he call up a demon to like devour the body? Mm. Well, yes, but I wouldn't be able to control it and it would probably devour us as well. Okay. So can Jonathan do something you know to right. whatever you know magically and you know again it's sort of the he he's the plotting one but not the doing one um he, right. and and when he does come up with the idea it is again you know Andrew who summons the demons and and Jonathan who you know transforms himself to look like
2: right. Katrina
0: and um right and he
1: says you know not only all that, but it's you know, we did this. We did this together. This is on all of us. Like, like well, no, right. um pretty sure like you did it, but he's you know
0: But there is a sense where they did help. Like I mean Sure. If they went like, you know, Jonathan is like, Let's go to the cops. Like we have if we go now and we explain what happened, maybe they'll be now obviously that's stupid like they won't be lenient but like yeah. at the same time like he's at least feeling conscience about it mm-hmm. <laughs> like and not you know whatever and i think so you know i don't know that we need to go through the details of the timey-wimey demons mm-hmm. and the you know the um whole plot and all of that of you know how they convince buffy that she kills katrina right um but, skipping to kind of the end of that, um, you know they seem to like think they they got away with it and 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 rightfully so, I mean Buffy thinks that she did it you know and right. and is prepared to go to the cops and everything um but even later, like when they're looking at the uh, uh you know notice like the the death certificate or whatever it is on the computer um and Warren's like you know we did it we got away we got away with murder and like he's very excited about it mm-hmm. right and Andrew is a little more nebulous but also comes to the conclusion like hey it's kind of cool and you kind of like like you think he's sort of being honest there like
2: mm-hmm.
0: like he is dubious about it but like at the same time like does kind of think it's cool and then Jonathan repeats it and is very much skeptical mm. like you almost get the sense that he's like he's the kid trying the cigarette even though he doesn't really want to but everyone else is doing it right you know what i mean like like he doesn't necessarily actually think it's cool that they got away with murder but like is saying it because if he doesn't he's worried about what's going to happen to him right this maybe. is the
1: socially acceptable thing to
0: say in this situation
1: of just right. nod and agree and
0: yeah um and so i think yeah i think that's sort of telling about right like like i don't want you know without getting into like what happens next or anything right like like i just want to at least point out that at this point we see those three different reactions mm-hmm. you know from from the you know trio there um
1: right well yeah. and even the way that jonathan comes back from his sort of Shape shifting as Katrina, like, puts mm. him in a different light than the others because he's kind of, you know, playing this sort of abuse victim and everything. And then he comes back like it. It's it could almost be funny, but it's not. Like that he comes back with like her makeup like smeared all over his face and everything. Um, and it's like, in a way, he he kind of seems like he maybe of the most, of the, of the three is the most remorseful about what they've done. And that he has this kind of connection to her that he actually had to go out and play her for a little while. Um, you know, and, you know, he says like some of my best work, but like, you know, I guess had to sort of put on a performance and cry as her. And so he comes back with this sort of like mascara stain and everything. <laughs> right, um, right. But like, it, it does give him more of a, a look of regret than the others have. Mm. Again, sure. part of that is performance, but is there some truth in there too of, you know, him feeling differently than the others about, you know, what's happened? Mm. You know, which, you know, of the three, he is the closest to, like, Buffy and the gang. Like, he was never one of the Scoobies, but, like, he hasn't always been... Like, there were times when he wasn't trying to be an evil genius, where, like, he admired Mm -hmm. Buffy and her friends and wanted to be a part of them and wanted to be a good guy and a hero and all these things so it kind of makes sense that of the three he's maybe the least kind of corrupt at this point you know <laughs> um right. or at least there's still some nuggets uh, inside of him still that are you know the you know the same old kind of mixed up kid that we've seen for the past like six seasons and everything You know, like doesn't yeah. didn't Xander say like hasn't Jonathan like learned this lesson by now? And it's like Right. I mean, yeah, you wanna smack him because he should have learned this lesson by now, but like it does it's not like he hasn't learned anything. He might not have learned enough, but you still get some like remnants of sympathy and empathy and humanity within him, I think.
0: Yeah. And and it's a far cry from being in the watchtower, you know, ready to kill yourself. Right. You know, to actively out there sort of hurting other people. And, right. you know, the, the... I mean, I think we brought this up, or you brought it up, like, maybe a couple weeks ago or... or I don't remember, a couple episodes ago or whatever, that, like... You know, even in like his fantasies, at least it was like him as being a hero, Mm -hmm. you know, versus like now where he's part of a evil team, you know, doing evil. But like, you do get the sense that like, even like, like their evilness until now, like, I definitely think this episode marks a turn in their evilness, Mm -hmm. right? Like, obviously killing someone, but even, even like if they had. Even if, like, Katrina had escaped and, like, lived and whatever. Right. Like, kidnapping a person to, you know, force her to do whatever for you. Anything, really. But, you know. Especially what they were going to do with her. Um, Like, that's that's a very different thing than, like, even, like, stealing a diamond or, you know accidentally like turning Buffy invisible <laughs> like right. like those are just kind of like yes mischievous but like not necessarily like evil kind of mm-hmm. things like this is kind of their first real act of evil mm-hmm. and it's uh you know I don't know right like like you you think back then to like they their board of like Money and and girls, girls, girls. But you're kind of thinking at that point, like, it's like, oh, like, if we have money, then girls will flock to us. Right. Not will you know, brainwash them into doing things for us. Right, right. kind of stuff. Well,
1: and their response to their first real act of evil is not to pull back, you know, or to, you know, feel remorse or go to the police or whatever it is. It's, you know one to try to get away with it and then two to pin it on somebody else you know so Mm. like they cross that line and then they go even further and you know that same direction of you know we're gonna double down on this and not only are we gonna get away with our acts of evil but we'll use it to try to destroy buffy in the process
2: um
0: Um, so, yeah, so speaking of Buffy, yeah, we should probably talk about her a bit, yeah and some of the others,
1: yeah, I guess it it is her show, kind of
2: <laughs> um
1: so yeah, um, I mean, I feel like we started to talk about Buffy and Spike, but I guess we can kind of continue with them, um uh, you know, so we're getting you know, it seems like each episode she makes a new uh you know, uh, decision to end it, you know, with Spike. And then, um, each episode, it kind of reveals that, uh, not only is it not being ended, but they're getting closer and closer and spending more and more time together. Um, and so in this episode, it starts with like, you know, the, the sounds of crashing and, you know, things being thrown around and, You kind of get the idea of, again, of them having this sort of, you know, passionate, you know, kind of angry and violent lovemaking that we've seen before. But you also get in this episode something new, which is like a kind of calm aftermath to that, which I don't think Mm -hmm. we've seen before. Of like, it's been a kind of thing where they're together and then they're done and Buffy sort of leaves in a huff. Um, whereas here, like they're kind of, you know, enjoying, you know, basically enjoying each other's company after it's over and like they catch themselves chatting, um, (laughs) and talking about like decorating and, you know, kind of normal, normal couple stuff. Um, So yeah, um, you know, Spike says, do you even like me? And she says sometimes, um, which is an admission that sometimes she does. So she's finding herself getting comfortable with him and even getting to sort of, so it's not, it's not just a purely like, uh, hate relationship, you know, it's, If she likes him sometimes, it's because they actually are, I guess, starting to sort of get along like as a real couple.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: Which, I mean, she doesn't like that. So then ends up leaving in a huff, (laughs) but she doesn't leave in the huff right away. Like she, it's only when she realizes that she's getting comfortable that it, it turns her off again. Um, And
0: she has to find her underwear first.
1: Right, right. That too. (laughs) Um, Which, I mean, brings up this issue of, um, I guess, like, comfort on one level, but trust on the other. Um, Mm. You know, so, you know, he pulls out, like, the handcuffs or whatever and says you know, do you trust me and never. And, you know, so there's the sense in which like, you know, they're talking about it on one level, but on another level, it's this question of like, do you trust me as a person in the relationship? Not just do you trust me to, you know, to do things to you or to be safe with you or whatever, but do you actually have trust in me as a person? And her answer being never, but yeah. Is that something she can totally control is sort of my question, because if she's getting comfortable enough with him to chat and stay after and have a relationship, whether she wants to or not, does that mean that she will start to trust him whether she wants to or not? Um, Like, is she kind of finding that she does trust him implicitly, even if she's not making a decision? To do that one way or the other. I don't know the answer. I'm just speculating.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I mean. And. Does anything change throughout the episode. From. When. He asked her that. Mm. At the beginning to. The end. I mean. Right.
2: I don't know.
1: Yeah. Um I mean, he certainly whether or not he really is capable of loving her in the way that he says he does and she says he doesn't. Um he's definitely being like tenacious about sticking with her and being and taking care of her like the way that he follows her throughout the episode and and hounds her about not going to the police you know and then physically stops her like lets her you know, gets in her way and like lets her beat him bloody to stop her from you know going into the police and everything um you know, like he, he definitely seems to be at least trying to, you know, I don't know if he's trying to prove it or if he is just, you know, willing to sort of try to protect her as much as he can in in whatever way he thinks he can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so whether or not that earns him trust, I'm not, I guess we'll kind of have to have to see.
0: Sure. Well, and you get the, uh, like, this is the callback to Drusilla, right? Like, is it even Buffy who says, you know, vampires can't love? And she says, oh, yes, we can, if not always wisely. Right. right? Like, there's this idea that love isn't impossible for vampires. Right. Um, Buffy seems to have forgotten that, though. And, or at least doesn't want to acknowledge it, mm-hmm. whether she remembers or not right right
1: um i mean and so even before the whole thing with katrina happens too i mean you still get him kind of following her around for other reasons you know so like there's definitely it's not a purely one-sided you know altruistic thing like You definitely get the sense of him trying to convince her, you know, Mm. um, to stay with him, to be with him, all these things. And then again, like you said, that they're that they're the same, you know, that um, he kind of pulls her away from or catches her away from the the dance with her friends, Um, you know, and kind of whispers in her ear about you know that they're not she's not part of the same world that they are Um, you know and even that she might be enjoying having this kind of secret that they don't know about yeah um i'm almost feeling like i want to skip Ahead to the stuff like the conversation with Tara at the end, but I don't know if I wanted to do that or not. So, so it, well, so it kind of ties together because with Buffy, there's this, you know, conflict between, you know, what does she really want? Um, you know, with Spike and as far as he's concerned of, you know, and kind of what she says to to Tara at the end, like you said, is that on the one hand, she only feels things when she's with him. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it kind of seems like the things that she feels are not necessarily good. Um, you know, yeah. there is this kind of sense of, sure, I'll, you know... I'll do anything to make me, I mean, you hear people say that in other contexts of like, it's better to feel something, even if it's something like, you know, bad or painful or whatever, than to just be totally numb. Um, you know, and that's kind of the impression that I get of, you know, when she kind of breaks down to tear at the end of like, why do I let him do these things? Like, that doesn't sound like um, it's not just the shame of what if everybody knew. Like, that's part of it. But
0: mm-hmm. there's
1: also, I think, it seems like there's some of that is internal as well. Um, It's not just like, oh, they would judge me if they knew that I'm doing these things with Spike. It's that question of like, why am I doing it at all? You know, why do I let him do these things or control me this way or you know, whatever. Um, and so there's a kind of like, I don't know, masochistic aspect to the relationship almost like a sense of like, she keeps going back to it because it makes her feel something, but the feelings aren't necessarily positive. Um,
0: So, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's totally the implication. And, um... I mean, there's also a sense of, like... Does she... Does she know or strongly suspect that she's been fine all along? Like, like is this whole, like, narrative that she's been telling herself of that she came back wrong, Mm -hmm. like... Is that something that just isn't true? And she kind of knows it's not that that it's not true right. right from the beginning. And I don't know. Like, yeah. Like maybe it's just now. There's no ev- there's no evidence whatsoever. Like as long as she, you know, believe that like. Something with the spell was wrong, or or that she came back different. You know, she could sort of blame her actions on something else, but now mm-hmm. she can't. And maybe it's sort of that that facing that reality of, you know, right. I just don't. I don't have any other aspect of you know being able to to not take responsibility for my actions since I've been brought back to life Mm
1: -hmm. right right and if she's making choices that she doesn't feel um comfortable with or completely satisfied by or whatever like you said she can't she can't blame it on something else she doesn't have an external source of well you know i'm Drawn to these things or feel these feelings or impulses because you know, uh, I'm whatever coming back wrong means you know, I'm not fully alive or I'm part demon or my you know, soul got corrupted or whatever, and so therefore, it's not me really doing it, it's not my fault, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what Tara tells her right. is, apart from. A very minor little like molecular change um that's it there's nothing you know she didn't come back part demon or you know possessed by anything um right and yeah so she has to sort of that's the breakdown at the end is to kind of realize wait a minute maybe i'm doing things because i actually like am choosing to do them um And she has to sort of, you know, interrogate why she's making those decisions on her own. Mm. Um, You know, and that feeling of, like, her asking, like, this isn't me. It can't be me. Like,
2: Mm.
1: you know, of all the possibilities she's considered... It can't, it can't, like, I think we all find it hard to imagine ourselves sort of making terrible choices or doing things that we don't approve of. And yet we all do them, you know, maybe not terrible things, but we all do things that you think like, you know, you ask yourself after the fact, why (laughs) did I do it? Um, Why
0: did I eat that entire cake? (laughs)
1: To, would be something i might ask right yeah right myself right exactly <laughs> why did i go back on mountain dew
0: no just kidding
1: um
0: hey i've been good <laughs> you've
1: been good about Mountain dew. um so yeah um and to kind of find that it's not it's absolutely something that those things are things we have control over um And that's a tough realization of, okay, there's nobody to, there's nowhere to blame but your own self and your own choices and everything. Um, So, yeah. Um, Kind of a strange little ending. Like, it kind of like, it kind of like snuck up on me a little bit. Like, you know, they're kind of going through the, The mystery of she's trying to, she's going to go to the cops and then she realizes it's Christina and then she, you know, decides like, no, it's, it's, you know, Warren and the rest and we have to go back for them. And then meantime, in the meantime, Tara gets back to her and they have this conversation and then it kind of ends like that's sort of the ending of the episode. So it's sort of hard to say like, you know obviously there's no real sense of like resolution in this episode. It's sort of um no, you know she's aware of her own trauma, but still in the kind of thick of it, there's not really any sense of how will well, this will this open her up to a new kind of self awareness or is this just like a further deteriorating of her like psychological state? It's kind of hard to. to say really
0: um yeah uh one thing that sort of occurred to me while you're talking to is that like like i think one of the issues that she's coming to grips with is is her own sort of black and white morality Mm -hmm. because like as long as she could sort of believe that she was wrong or not the same person as she used to be Mm -hmm. like she could sort of forgive herself or mm-hmm. or not even it's not even a matter of forgiveness, it's well, it's someone else doing this stuff.
2: Right.
0: Um but but Tara has a more fluid sort of mm-hmm. ethical perspective, maybe, or moral perspective. And and is like like asking her questions that Buffy's been trying hard not to ask mm-hmm. of herself. Like questions like do you love Spike? Like, Buffy doesn't want to answer that question. Right. That's what she's been trying to avoid answering all this time. And and Tara kind of saying, it's okay if you do, and it's okay if you don't. Like, like both of those situations are fine. It's just the way that you feel. Right. Like, one way or the other, it's just the way that you feel. And Buffy is putting a lot more moral weight mm-hmm. on on those feelings right and and the actions that go with the feelings too but tara's kind of saying like you've been through a lot and like if this is what you need to get through it then that's okay and i feel like it's that like maybe it's almost like it's kind of like buffy sort of slut shaming herself sure in a way you know what i mean like it's you know and whether that's because she really believes it or thinks that's how other people will see her. And so it's maybe preemptive or or vicarious or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Like, like there's that sense where, you know, I think Tara is just like a lot more willing to be, you know. And I mean, it's funny because as, as sort of timid and whatever as Tara is a lot of the time, like, Mm -hmm. like sexuality and like her, you know, non, you know, hetero, you know, whatever, like Mm -hmm. outlook on life is like one of her strengths. It's, it's very much that like, Hey, like how you are is how you are. And if this is what you need to be, then it's what you need to be. And so, you know, but Buffy can't seem to kind of come to grips with that. Like she for whatever reason feels like a lot of pressure to act and believe in a certain way. And it's much more rigid and much more black and white. Right. Um, and and part of that's tied up in the whole vampire thing, too, is uh, you know, Spike's a vampire. He's evil. He's what I'm supposed to be fighting against. It's not it's it's not even it's not just I'm having sex with someone I don't love. Right. right. Like it's, you know, does that make me a slut or whatever? But it's, right. this is, I'm the vampire slayer and this is a vampire. And not like a special case vampire like Angel, Angel with a happens soul. to right, have right, a soul. Right. You know, but a, vamp, a like a truly evil demon infested vampire who... Has tried to kill me and I've tried to kill him in the past. Mm -hmm. And like whose only saving grace is that he has this chip, so he can't actually hurt anyone. Well, except me now. But, you know, that's the like that's the only thing keeping him alive at this point. Because otherwise Buffy would have already killed him, or at least tried very hard to do so. Right. And now she's Well, I almost said sleeping with him, but like stronger than that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like and so and so this leads me to like to another aspect, um, of when they're at the bronze and up in the balcony there looking down on everyone and I mean I don't wanna draw a strong uh, parallel to Katrina and the trio, but she does tell Spike to stop.
2: Right.
0: And he doesn't. And she doesn't make him. Right. So like, there's like, like this. Right.
1: Dubious consent there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Cause like, I feel like that's, there's a lot of like articles and conversations right now about consent and, you know, especially around like college campuses and and that kind of thing. Like, like what, you know, if two people are drunk and they have sex, like can either of them consent? Can, does it matter? Cause like, you know, they're both drunk or like, you know what's going on and there's a lot of different answers and and a lot of different feelings on the subject um given by different people and and i feel like if that episode aired today mm-hmm. like there would i I mean i don't know i don't really know what the reaction was to it from a general perspective mm-hmm. um but if that episode aired today like i feel like there would be a lot of different conversation yeah. than maybe happened at the time because right you know there it it is it's very dubious and at this and and I feel like that's one of the things that buffy is asking about when she says why do I let him do those things to me
1: right right and that's what um, i was getting at was like let him sounds like not something you're willingly you know sure. what i mean like it's not it's not The way she has it phrased is, it's not, why do I do those things with Spike? Why am I making these choices? Why am I doing these things that I don't agree with? It's, why do I let him? You know, it's phrased in a way that makes it sound unwelcome. You know?
0: Yeah, but also, I think there's a way where she was recognizing that she could stop him. Sure. And, and for I some mean, reason
1: And is clearly seeking him out too. It's not a completely Right, right. One, it's not right. a one way Right.
0: She goes to his right. crypt. Right. Like it's not like I mean in the bronze he just sort of finds her and right. does whatever. But like that's not it all the time either. And so um. So actually just to bring up that scene again of at the bronze um Sarah Michelle Geller actually has stated that that's her least favorite scene of all of Buffy interesting um and and partly because she does she says that she feels like it's out of character mm. um for Buffy um so the writer uh who is uh Stephen S. DeKnight, um who wrote a bunch of Buffy episodes mm-hmm. he's he's also the uh the daredevil, show name, right, or right, right, right. What was? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I can't remember if he is for the next season or not. But anyway, um, yeah. So, so Sarah Michelle Gellar says, "I had trouble, uh, you know, when Buffy had se- sex with Spike on the balcony. I really thought it was out of character. I don't like what it stood for." Um, the knight says, "You know, I understand why that part made her uncomfortable, um, but it's actually Joss Whedon." something he had in the back of his head Mm. and so you know it just kind of happened to be in that episode but then he also kind of goes on further to say um just from like the arc of the episode Mm -hmm. where you have like a more humorous beginning and then you know it gets really dark 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 and like he 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 does kind of correlate you know that scene and katrina's death and um you know kind of like together spiraling down into like the darkness of the second half of the episode really um yeah and says uh you know it highlights how unhappy Buffy is with herself and shows you know that she's mistreating Spike in a way too you know as much as he's sort of mistreating her Mm -hmm. that's now that's the writer's perspective we can agree or disagree you know with that necessarily you know one way or the other but um at least that I, I definitely found it interesting when I heard, you know, when I read that mm-hmm. she, she disliked it, but, but it was sort of Joss Whedon who wanted that in there. And, and that from the sort of episode structure, it does kind of highlight a specific point, you know, in the episode. Well, and it connects
1: um, the two plots, you know, like sure. if kind of this issue of, of, um you know, consent and everything is sort of the unifying theme between the two. You know, and yeah. and I think in the same way that Andrew and Jonathan can say, well, it's not rape because it's this magical spell and, you know, whatever and, like, and, and you said you said all the right things you said yes or whatever, like, it doesn't count. Um, you know, I, it, it, by the same token again, there's that kind of not really thinking of it as it is aspect of, well, because you, like she said, she says no. And then he sort of persists. And it's like, well, because she doesn't stop him, therefore it's consensual. Like, you know, well, you could have done this. You could have said, no, you could have, whatever. And so therefore it doesn't count because, you know, it, it doesn't, conform to whatever you know i think of as you know rape or whatever um but it's the same kind of thinking that allows like jonathan and andrew to sort of deceive themselves um Mm -hmm. and thinking that it's you know fine so
0: well and and i but i also think i I don't disagree with any of that yeah i don't so i i I, the but there was maybe misapplied but Mm -hmm. Um I I also think that with Buffy and Spike, it does highlight that kind of what Tara's point is is that it it's messy and not always clear.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that can be okay. And and maybe there are times where you both want and don't want something.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's I mean, I'm not necessarily, like, I don't, I'm not excusing Spike, because she did say stop, and that's, right. you know, there's an issue there, but at the same time, it's also okay for Buffy to feel conflicted about sure. it. Sure. You know, um, so I, I think there's there's that aspect of it, too, of, of just whether Buffy wants to paint it in a black and white, you know, uh, issue or not, like, there is that fact that, yeah, things aren't always as clear-cut as you want them to be. Mm-hmm. The, the Katrina and Trio situation, clear-cut. That's pretty clear-cut. Right. But the Buffy-Spike situation maybe isn't. And, and that yes, there are parallels, but it's not exactly the same. And so I think that's sort of what Tara mm-hmm. is kind of getting at at the end there, that however you feel is okay because they're just feeling like feelings are feelings and you're going to feel that. But, right. you know, it, it, that doesn't make you a bad person just because you feel a certain way. Right. Yeah. And
1: I think Tara is specifically talking about like feelings there of, you know, um, right. you know, what you do with those feelings in terms of your actions is, you know, maybe maybe something different. But, you know, you're not in control of how you kind of have a visceral gut reaction to something um, Mm -hmm. for good or bad. And, and it's, it, it's a natural response to your situation and it doesn't have to, you know, you know, say kind of, it doesn't have to be the end, the end statement on who you are and what kind of person you are and whether you're, you know, good or bad or evil or anything. right so yeah
0: um all right so i don't i I don't is there anything else you want to talk about with buffy
1: um i i I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because i feel like we should probably wrap up soon but um uh did just want to quick mention the couple scenes with dawn that there's this sort of you know, Mm -hmm. um, conflict there and Dawn's sense of um, not really relying on Buffy to be around much lately Mm -hmm. Um, and even suspecting that Buffy would rather be somewhere else. So that almost as if when this sort of uh, situation comes up where she thinks she killed Katrina, that it's almost a relief. You know, it's like, finally Buffy has the excuse to get out of here Um, because she's so kind of palpably miserable that clearly she'd rather be, you know, anywhere else, which I don't know that Dawn has the whole truth, but she may have a part of the truth there, you know? Um, Like does Buffy actively want to abandon Dawn and her friends No, I don't think so. But, you know, there could be a sense of if Buffy is kind of in a particularly confused and self-loathing state, there could be a relief in just saying, I'm a bad person. I killed someone. Go to the police. Let them sort it out. So I don't have to do it anymore. You know, I don't have to be the one to... Make those choices and keep fighting and keep having to figure out what the right thing is, it's out of my hands, you know. And so she can't help but come across as a bit relieved at that, you know, situation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, that's all I wanted to point out for Dawn, really. Um, and I guess just the last thing, um, is. Willow and Tara, um, who have, you know, they bump into each other and we hear, you know, each of them is sort of worried about the other. Um, you know, we mm-hmm. see that as we see Tara's concern kind of both about Willow and for Willow, like first she heard kind of assumption is that Willow is like killing people with magic. <laughs> like if she hurt somebody or, you know, is, continuing to spiral whereas um Buffy explains that she's actually doing better um and then when we see them together Willow kind of going out of her way to you know reassure Tara that uh she is doing better that there aren't hard feelings there um you know kind of letting Tara know don't um don't feel like you can't do magic and, you know, be who you are just because of what I'm going through, all that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and they kind of you know, uh leave on kind of pretty peaceful terms with each other. Like, they are a little uh in a better space than they've been since the whole conflict came about. They kind of seem you know maybe maybe starting to move out of the 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 anger phase into some sort of more understanding and being a little bit you know i don't know
0: reconciliatory that's a good word yeah sure so cool well um so I do want to point out before we end that uh, we actually have another Buffy episode for next week. Oh, okay. so we're we're following right into uh, the next episode, "Older and Far Away." It's a it's actually a Buffy birthday episode, so we'll get to uh, see some more birthday shenanigans.
1: All right, very good. See you then. Okay.